Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Jonathan McGarrian, a host on New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Alexander Lee about his book, Humanism and Empire, The Imperial Ideal in 14th Century Italy, published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. Alex, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Yeah, um, so can you tell me a little bit about how you came to this project? Yes, it was actually almost by accident. Some uh, years ago, I had a research fellowship at the University of Luxembourg. Uh, And while I was there, I was doing a project on, um, which was intended to be on, um, the influence of Italian humanism on the governance, the imperial governance of Charles IV of Bohemia. But while I was uh, doing uh, the, or entering the, the early stage of this research, um, it dawned on me that in order um, really to approach the subject properly, I would first have to establish um, a clear idea of how um, Italian humanists viewed um, the Holy Roman Empire uh, in the mid 14th century. And um, I did a bit of reading and I was surprised by how little serious attention had been given to this question. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll you know, set aside a chapter of a prospective book to look at this. And slowly the chapter got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And eventually I thought, well, actually, this is a probably a more urgent uh, topic to address, and it deserves a monograph of its own. So I set out to um, look at uh, humanist imperialism throughout the, uh, the, if you like, the long 14th century from um, about sort of uh, the late 13th century onwards to to, to, uh, to, to, to about 1402. Great. Um, and yeah, I mean, just, just touching on that sort of much like the idea of the Renaissance itself, the nature of humanism has been hotly contested for literally centuries. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was wondering, could you maybe sketch out some of the contours of that debate, uh, of the sort of history of the historiography, and then tell us where you come down on this issue and, and the framework that you use for the book? Sure. Well, um, Perhaps instead of, if I may just briefly qualify your question, instead of looking at the the, uh, constructions of humanism generally, um, I may focus briefly on the way in which humanist political thought has been understood um, in the past uh, two or three centuries of historical scholarship. Um, That overlaps significantly with uh, historiographical perceptions of the politics of northern Italy itself. So it's best that we discuss the two um, together. Um, well, generally speaking, um, it would be fair to say that uh, 
we need to begin with uh, a brief overview of the uh, of what's happening in Northern Italy first, uh, and what's happening with the empire's involvement with Northern Italy first. As uh, listeners may be aware, uh, Northern Italy, that is to say, uh, most of the region north of Rome, uh, had been an integral part of the Holy Roman Empire since uh, at least uh, the the uh, mid tenth century. Um, the German emperors uh, had uh, either taken up residence there or at least made um, expeditions there pretty much continuously until um, the uh, from from the 10th century down to the, the the 13th century. But with the death of um, Frederick II in 1250, all that changes. Um, imperial authority all but vanishes from the north of the peninsula. That's because um, the uh, princes of Germany finally get sick of having overbearing emperors um, running amok, if you like, and so decide to elect um, what are called count kings, candidates for the imperial throne who are relatively weak potentates. Um, they all hold very little land, at least to start with, and they're unable to challenge the position of the major princes. This is, I should add, a very, uh, uh, very um, simplified question, uh, overview. Um, in the absence of imperial authority, the political trends which have uh, marked the uh, northern Italy uh, in the uh, 11th and 12th century suddenly accelerate. Um, communes, the nascent communes of northern Italy, began to consolidate their hold over the surrounding countryside and to develop their institutions of self-government. For many of them, um, this proves problematic, factions appear, and a great number of them begin to collapse in on themselves, so much so that they either invite local strongmen to take over or um, somebody just asserts, a local lord just asserts control over them. Um, where communes do fall uh, under the rule of so-called signori, lords, uh, then this sort of, those figures generally pursue a process of the territorial acquisition as well. Um, so you've got a, a, a web of, or a patchwork quilt of small uh, powers in northern Italy. Uh, little cities, little lordly states, etc. Into the gap previously filled by um, imperial potentates, uh, the camp kings being unable to uh, venture outside the German lands to assert their notional authority in the, Itali in the Italian peninsula. Into the void left by their absence steps first the Angevin kings uh, of, of, of uh, the, the Angevin kings, um, and then when they you know, they get uh, preoccupied by things like the Sicilian Vespers, then the papacy starts trying to involve itself more actively in northern Italy too, uh, relatively unsuccessfully. Um, so you've got a very chaotic political situation in northern Italy in the late 13th century and the early 14th century. At this time, you you also have a period of tremendous intellectual development. You have the emergence of scholasticism at the university, uh, focused on the University of Bologna in particular, um, and, and uh, uh, in a number of other centres as well. Um, this leads to a regeneration of the study of Roman law um, and uh, of uh, the, the revival of Aristotelian ideas in political thought. But at the same time, you also see the emergence of humanism. Humanism is... Uh, generally thought to have emerged out of the study of grammar and rhetoric and focused on 
um, the study and uh, the recovery and emulation of the Latin classics. Um, it uh, showed its first signs of emerging probably in Padua at the end of the 13th century, um, but a parallel strain subsequently emerged in nearby Verona, and that was more interested in recovering um, uh, a greater knowledge of, of uh, ancient history um, and, and antiquarianism, um, and to a certain extent, a basic form of philology. Um, these forms come together and flourish by the early 14th century. Now, from the beginning, humanism is really, really very, very political. Uh, the humanists, many of whom in the early days are uh, have legal training and are involved in communal or significant politics, uh, are really interested in the major questions of the day, you know, how uh, their city is being governed, writing histories of recent political changes, etc., etc., composing poems on recent events, etc. Um, and perhaps only naturally, they become, like their contemporaries, scholastics, etc., they become very, very interested in the, uh, the question of imperial authority. Um, they uh, are aware of the heritage of the Roman past. They're aware that emperors used to have, or kings of the Romans used to have a presence in northern Italy, and they start to think about it. As they're starting to think about it, suddenly everything changes from 1308, when Henry VIII, Henry VII of Luxembourg is elected King of the Romans and announces his intention to come to Italy again. This catalyzes a century of, of, of revived imperial ambitions in Italy. And the humanists, like their, their, their contemporaries Dante, uh, etc., etc., are super excited by this. Although there is some uh, political opposition in some quarters to an imperial presence in Italy, the humanists all pretty much uniformly welcome the revival of imperial interests in northern Italy. And they speak about successive emperors and kings of the Romans, though sometimes in a qualified way, generally in a very warm and positive way. Um, and there is no mistaking the warmth of their affections. Now, despite this, since the beginnings of um, modern historical scholarship, historians have viewed um, humanist imperialism in the 14th century um, with great scepticism. In fact, most studies of humanist political thought have pretty much ignored it altogether or treated it as some kind of hangover, some nostalgic whimsy that they succumbed to, as if they were suffering from some kind of cold or, or flu, if you like. Um, this began uh, way back in the late 18th century, the 19th century, when you have romantic people influenced by romantic and enlightenment ideals, people like Ludovico uh, Moratori and a little bit later Sismondi Sismondi. Um, they look at the history of um, the political history of Northern Italy and they say, well, okay, given that in our own day we're, we are super interested in liberty. We can interpret the history of Northern Italy in the late 13th and early 14th centuries along the same lines. We have these early communes, which have a Republican, a notionally Republican form, who seem to be defenders of liberty, they said. And they're obviously struggling against um, the signori and other forms of monarchical potentates who can be construed as an embodiment of uh, tyranny or despotism, if you like. So these early romantics saw the whole period in terms of a battle between common liberty and seigneurial or monarchical despotism. Um, they didn't really tie it in with humanism, but 
In the mid-19th century, that starts to get built in. Jakob Burkhardt, whom, uh, with whom many uh, listeners may be familiar, uh, outlined a very definite um, understanding uh, of both the politics of the period and uh, humanism's involvement in it, in his, in his book, The uh, Culto de Renaissance in Italian. Um, Burkhardt argued, he sustained the idea that, uh, that there was this contrast between uh, despotism and uh, common liberty. Um, he acknowledged that uh, sometimes humanists could also you know, write for anybody they liked, you know, republics and communes and, and signori. But Burkhardt was very unusual. He was the first person to suggest that uh, humanism in its true form, should be associated with the emergence of the idea of man as a spiritual individual, free from the constraints of, in his words, superstition or overarching systems of, of, uh, of, of, of uh, authority, organisation, whatever. Um, and he suggested that this idea, this humanistic idea of man as a spiritual individual, first emerged in the city republics, the communes didn't say why very clearly, but he linked humanism with communes for the first time. Later, this was developed um, a lot more uh, clearly. Um, I won't go into too much detail, um, but um, perhaps the next big figure to note is uh, Hans Barone, um, who in a series of landmark studies from the 1930s on uh, to the 1960s, um, suggested that um, humanists uh, were um, initially drawn, of course, to the, the Roman past at the beginning of the 14th century. But by the, the mid-1340s, the 1350s, uh, etc., um, they start to abandon their undifferentiated approach to the Roman past and instead start to idealise the Roman Republic. And he suggests that this became um, progressively more pronounced until by the very beginning of the 15th century, in the midst of the wars between Florence and Milan, we see the emergence of something called civic humanism in Florence, um, which he, see, he believed was um, derived from um, principally Ciceronian ideas of um, civic duty and responsibility, which uh, in his mind extolled um, the superiority of republics to all forms of lordly governance and which uh, made the strength of any republic dependent upon um, uh, the virtues of its citizens. In doing so, he necessarily, but this is uh, Baron, necessarily opposed humanism, which he associated with republicanism because of its um, classical uh, associations, to all forms of monarchical government. So in his mind, if in the late 14th century you were a humanist, you necessarily were coming into opposition to lords, kings, emperors, etc. Um, he couldn't, of course, deny that some humanists, like Francesco Petrarca, who we know more commonly as Petrarch, did occasionally voice pro-imperial sentiments. But he said, you know, these don't really matter. This is the, the kind of throwback. This is just a kind, an occasional bout of nostalgia, which we can essentially dismiss. Now, Burkhardt's been criticised very heavily. Baron has been criticised very heavily, so, um, and with very good reason. Um, but what is surprising is that even some of his most persuasive critics have 
uh, been inclined to support his contention that humanism should be linked with the communal experience and that it should be opposed to all forms of monarchical governance, be that signal or imperial. Quentin Skinner, for example, a truly brilliant scholar in his um, monumental uh, work, The Foundations of Modern Political Thought, made this point precisely. He argued that um, uh, the uh, defense of civic humanism, the, the defense of civic liberty against tyranny was really um, most persuasively advanced by the humanists who were drawn towards it most particularly by their enthusiasm for the classics. And he uh, explicitly suggested that humanists by the, uh, by the mid-14th century were increasingly opposing imperial government. Um, now, in more recent years, these ideas have started to be criticised a bit. Um, some scholars like Philip Jones have suggested that actually it's mistaken to view the history of Northern Italy uh, as a conflict between communes and uh, tyrants, if you like, um, and that actually it's it's much more complicated than that. Um, uh, communes fought communes, tyrants fought signori fought signori, etc. Um, and the communes were prepared to accept support from whoever they, they could get, uh, they could find as allies, be that a, a lord, a republic, or a, a, an emperor or a king. And by extension, we have also seen in the work of people like Ron um, Paula um, that emperors, uh, even in the early 40, in the early, late 13th century, were still prepared to offer privileges to communes in return that is protection, legal protection, in return for payment or, or whatever. Um, so too, Ronald Witt, who unfortunately died a short time ago, um, pointed out that uh, liberty, uh, the, the, the central idea associated with humanism, is, uh, is in fact not really necessarily associated with any particular constitution, but can be applied to any uh, governmental structure in this period with equal facility. It's more a matter of morality and judicial concepts than, than, than constitutional form. Um, and uh, he's also suggested that um, the humanist enthusiasm for classical literature didn't necessarily um, lead them uh, to view um, empire with hostility. Cicero, for example, despite his later opposition to Julius Caesar, um, was in some of his earlier works um, Relatively ambivalent to to the idea of uh, to, to the idea of monarchy uh, as a system of government. In fact, some of his figures and some of his dialogues do actually speak um, in favour of it. Um, so that's the situation up to um, twenty eighteen. Uh, where do I stand on this? Um, well, I believe very strongly that we should take humanist imperialism seriously. That. Um, in my book, I tried to explain that throughout the 14th century, well, from the late 13th century to 1402, the humanists um, are singularly enthusiastic about the restoration of imperial authority in northern Italy. I argue um, that they see the empire, uh, the, 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 uh, they, they, they see the, the coming of emperors and they call for the coming of emperors um, as a, a means of bringing peace uh, to a fractured peninsula and to assuring the liberty of communes. And I point out, in fact, that it is those humanists who are living and writing on behalf of communes and common liberty who are the strongest defenders of um, imperial authority in northern Italy. Uh, I won't go on anymore because I realise I've already given quite an expansive answer. <laughs> 
No, that's perfect. And it actually quite literally ties into the the first question about the body of the book I was going to ask, which is to basically elaborate on that point. I mean, you start the the narrative uh, of the of the main body of the book by sort of saying that Dante is emblematic of this earliest generation of humanists who saw the empire as the salvation of a sort of factional North Italy. Um, and you 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 say, as you just did, that their imperialism grew out of their experience of urban politics and almost ironically, right, those who live under the communal regimes, the ones where you would expect the anti-imperial uh, uh, payons to, to republicanism would be most strong. Those are the folks who are making the strongest appeals to imperial authority. So can you kind of elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, uh, it's, Dante is a good place to start, even though uh, I think there are some major questions as to whether he can ever be considered a humanist. Uh, I probably would say that he, he, he wasn't. That's another topic. Um, in uh, the, the Commedia, um, Dante and Virgil meet um, a, a figure called Sordello, um, and Sordello is a is a is a, is a kind of a, a, a troubadour-like figure um, who is from Mantua, the city from which uh, Virgil Virgil came. Uh, and Sordello, on on seeing uh, Virgil, launches into a, a lament about the state of uh, Italy, well, his, his native city of Mantua and, and the state of Italy. And he, he is very, very sad that Italy, um, you know, once the, the queen of provinces had become the dwelling place of sorrow. Why had it become the dwelling place of sorrow? Well, because uh, everyone is fighting everybody else. Uh, there was a state of constant war in northern Italy between states and, crucially, within states. Actions are rife within individual cities, people are attacking each other with wanton delight. And the reason why this is so unconstrained, in Dante's opinion, is because the, the, uh, the then king of the Romans, as um, this is um, uh, the continuation of the earlier episode, um, Albert of Habsburg, was not present in northern Italy. Um, in the, the, with the, no one in the saddle, as he puts it, um, the, 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 the beast, the horse is running wild. Um, and so Dante um, calls the restitution of imperial authority to, to quell these um, uh, uh, struggles between and within um, communes. Um, although Dante's, um, uh, and of course Dante later went on to, to address a number of uh, powerful uh, letters to, to Henry VII um, that were very, very um, enthusiastic about the idea of the emperor as uh, a, a remedy for factionalism and a, uh, a, 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 a um, potential um, restorer of common liberty and Italic peace. Um, now, although Dante may uh, or may not be considered humanist, as you rightly point out, he is emblematic of the approach of the early humanists. Um, let's focus on one in particular. For me, the most important is Alberto Masato, and Masato was a, uh, a Paduan. Uh, he lived you know, uh, on the, the opposite side of Italy to, to, to France, um, of northern Italy, France. Um, he was uh, uh, he was very closely involved in the, um, the Paduan commune, 
Uh, he uh, served as an ambassador many, many times. Uh, he was one of the ambassadors who represented the Paduan commune at uh, Henry VII's coronation in Milan, uh, and he served in a number of important uh, posts. Uh, in the early 14th century, he finds himself and the city of Padua um, in a very tricky position. Padua is, uh, has in recent decades been engaging in a process of territorial expansionism. Despite being a commune, and despite what we might be inclined to think because of the previous historiographical tradition, um, Padua was uh, pretty greedy when it came to land. And sometime in the mid-13th century, it had acquired the neighbouring city of Vicenza. It hadn't really treated the Byzantines terribly, terribly well. And so in the early 14th century, surprise, surprise, the Byzantines rebel. And this uh, shocks the Paduans. They, they really have to try and recover um, the city of, of Vicenza for a variety of, of reasons, mainly because a lot of their richest citizens have land holdings there. Um, they think that one of the best solutions would be, when Henry VIII comes down to Italy in 1310, to get imperial confirmation of their rights over um, the city of Vicenza. And beautifully, Henry obliges. He says, yes, of course, you just, you know, you swear allegiance to me, promise that you'll respect uh, my rights in North Italy, pay me uh, a, a subvention of a certain sum, and I will assure your rights in law. And the Paduans are very happy. But very, very soon after this, uh, or a little while later, um, Henry surprises everybody by appointing the lord of a neighbouring city, Verona, a chap called Cangrandi della Scala. His vicar, that is his personal um, kind of um, uh, governor, if you like, not really governor, but um, somebody who governs under his authority, not just a Verona, but also of Vicenza. And Cangrande is a really ambitious, greedy chap. He has ambitions, territorial ambitions, even greater than Padua's, and he is willing to go and pursue those ambitions vigorously. And the Padua's are shocked. They don't understand why Henry has done this. And to be quite honest, I'm not completely sure why Henry, has, Henry did that. But this puts the Padua's in a fix. Do they uh, remain loyal to Henry? and hope to try and uh, sort things out and hope that he will still uphold their title to their land in Vicenza, even though Cangrandi is notionally uh, the, the, the vicar there. Or should they come out in rebellion? Uh, and this really gives um, Musata the opportunity to explain his position most clearly in um, his historical writings. Um, he doesn't ever write a treatise, uh, he doesn't write anything like Dante's De Monarchia or Marsilius of Padova's uh, Defensor Pacis, but he writes a series of histories in which his views are articulated. And he gives himself a series of speeches, um, which he notionally delivered before the, the Grand Council of Pancha. And he says, look, if we stay loyal, even Henry himself cannot challenge the privileges he has granted us. Back in the past, when he confirmed our rights to, to Vicenza, those were inviolable. Provided we stay loyal, Henry has to respect them. He cannot, according to his own laws, according to feudal law, he cannot 
violate our rights to Vicenza. So if Cangrande, having been named vicar, tries to take our land away from us, or, God forbid, attack us, which, uh, that is Padua itself, which Cangrande was already showing signs of wanting to do, then we have a legal recourse. We can put our, plead our case to Henry, and he will have to defend us. If, by contrast, we rebel against Henry, we become instantly guilty of um, lesser majesty. Um, we become treasonous, become traitors. And then Henry has every right to annul our privileges. And because we have no legal recourse and because we're traitors, Cangrandia La Scala has every right to attack us and take the city of Padua if he wants. We've got no recourse. And we'll find it difficult to find allies, allies too. Now, as it happens, the Padjums don't don't agree with him. They oppose Masato. Um, but uh, Masato's, uh, the logic of Masato's case is soon, pro- uh, soon vindicated um, as Cangrande run, plays merry hell with the Padjums on the battlefield. Um, eventually, they, they, the Padjums see the force of his argument and reconciled um, and uh, later seek help from Ludwig IV of Bavaria as well. They receive an imperial garrison as well as reconfirmation of their rights, and that helps them to hold off um, the uh, Cangrande's attacks for a little bit longer. Now, as things play out, um, the Pagans uh, are too badly divided against themselves to survive. But the real point here is that Musato makes the case in very humanistic terms, using classical language in speeches that are modelled on classical classical speeches, such as those found in the history of Sallust, for example, um, appealing to uh, legal ideas to defend the idea of Henry VII of Luxembourg, the Holy Roman Emperor, as the defender of Padua and liberty, indeed as the sole guarantor of Padua's rights and freedoms. Yeah, and actually, Musato is a great example. And and before we move on, I think it would be good, maybe you know, just briefly, if you could explain what exactly it is. You you sort of just alluded to it a little bit, but what the intellectual endeavor that he is undertaking, um, how that could be classified as a humanistic endeavor, and specifically how the the particular toolkit of the humanistic heritage allows him, catalyzes his thought towards this reconciliation of republicanism on the one hand, imperialism on the other hand. And it's 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 sort of put through this prism of feudal, scholastic, classical legal frameworks, as you mentioned. Sure. Well, that's a very, very good question. And I think really there are um, uh, two things I need to mention. Uh, number one, um, the texts in and through which Masato um, expresses his imperial sympathies are conceived along humanistic lines. Now, modelled after classical texts, Masato writes a very wide range of works. Um, he writes uh, tragedies, uh, most notably the one. His uh, major, the work for which he is best known is the Achelinus, um, a dramatic uh, uh, 
dramatization of Padua's struggle against uh, Ezzelino da Ramano in the mid-13th century, another signori, a signore who is very, very ambitious and who um, uh, really uh, puts Padua through hell a, a generation and more before the start of his own life. Um, he, he also writes uh, very large histories of um, uh, Italian affairs and particularly um, uh, Padian uh, affairs. Um, uh, there's the, um, uh, the Historia Augusta, the De Rebus Italicarum. There are several in verse as well on the siege of Padua, uh, the De Sidione, for example. He writes um, a number of uh, po um, uh, uh, letters in, in verse as well. Um, now let's focus particularly on the histories and the Acheronis. Uh, the Acheronis, as I mentioned, is modelled on Senecan tragedy. Uh, the uh, histories are, uh, although they are not uh, maybe quite as... Um, Although they still betray the heritage, the inheritance of earlier communal uh, chronicles, if you like, um, they are still um, very much conceived in imitation of uh, authors like uh, like Sallust, uh, for example. Why? Well, uh, they, uh, as one wit pointed out. Uh, the Historia begins with um, a description of, uh, you know, Henry the uh, uh, birth, his, the the country in which he grew up in Luxembourg, uh, a description of how that uh, environment might have shaped his character, etc. Later on, um, the, uh, the the all of his historical works um, show uh, a close awareness of character. Uh, they uh, paint major figures in three-dimensional terms. They give these characters extended speeches, which, although we can assume they are broadly representative of the views expressed at the time, at the time of the events they describe, um, they're obviously fictive um, at another level. They, they are, at the very least, embellished and possibly um, completely, uh, completely invented. Um, they, they they perfectly mirror the, the kind of speeches you find in, in, in Sallust. So, too, in the, the, the verse histories, the Obsidiani, etc., um, those are, uh, although the terminology is, is occasionally still marked by barbarism, medieval Latin, etc., the quality language isn't, isn't really, it's a for example, it's, um, Virgilian, it's, um, it's still, uh, evidently composed in an attempt to mimic uh, the norms of classical prosody. So that's the first uh, element, the humanistic element, uh, that informs, um, uh, or at least shapes, uh, Musato's imperialism. The other element perhaps is more important. Um, although it is the case that Musato's appeal to, uh, to Henry VII and Eighteenth IV authority are based on understanding of um, uh, feudal and Roman law. Um, they, these appeals, these legal appeals, are slotted into the framework of a 
wider moral understanding of Paduan and Italian history, which derives uh, its central precepts, which the central precepts of which are derived from um, the Roman moralists and historians, uh, Seneca, Cicero, Propertius, Sallust, etc. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, Musato, in common with many, many other contemporary uh, humanists, um, but starts off his understanding of, of history with reference to a buon tempo antico, uh, a never-never world sometime in the undefined past when, when cities were sustained by men of pristine virtue. As long as they were virtuous, they respected uh, equity and the common good. They subordinated their private interests to the common good, and they ensured that everybody was on the same, on a level playing field when it came to the law. These ideas, equity and common good, were for Cicero and for many other uh, thinkers the uh, basis of justice and liberty. Um, unfortunately, as time went by, Masato said, uh, and cities like Padua grew in stability and security and wealth, crucially, they became corrupted by their own success. Vices crept in and suddenly the whole structure falls apart. Um, private interest takes precedence over the common interest and um, uh, people try to uh, factions form, people try to use the courts for their own advantage. Um, and this inevitably turns cities, particularly communes, in on themselves um, and inevitably uh, uh, liberty is lost, whether that be through the dominance of, an, of, 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 an of a single faction or because the commune being divided against itself cannot defend itself against external aggression, uh, say against in the past, as you to remind these ideas are precisely the same as we find in the Roman moralists and historians. Um, readers of Sallust, for example, may recognise this kind of moral view of history um, very, very readily. Readers even Luca too. Um, so um, that's the, the 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 framework into which Musatus um, and Pyrrhism slots. He sees himself as living through the kind of final final age, although he believed that that Padua managed to save itself a bit after its initial period of factionalism and its, for, its persecution by Eslino de Romano, he still thinks that vice has undone it so much that the factions which have formed are basically irreconcilable and uh, it needs uh, the legal protection provided by an emperor uh, to save the commune's liberty. Uh, liberty in the sense of its rights, uh, its its capacity to um, govern itself and its uh, its right not to be dominated by external aggressors. So those are the two major humanistic pillars, things that make um, Musatis and Pillars humanistic. The the um, the, uh, the the form of his his writings and uh, the moral universe uh, within which he's operating. Now, in your next chapter, we see humanists of a slightly different variety. We move over to Verona, where humanists of a more textualist, antiquarian bent are seeking answers to concerns a little bit less parochial than those that are rooted just in the individual city-state. 
And if I'm getting this correctly, these thinkers come to identify the current empire with the ancient Roman Empire in several key respects. Yeah, I, that's that's uh, that's pretty true. Um, that's a very neat description, actually. Um, so, as you rightly say, uh, at about the time Masato is sketching out uh, his vision of imperialism in uh, uh, Padua, uh, another strain of humanism and another strain of humanist imperialism is appearing in Verona not very far away in the enemy city, if you like. Um, Verona is very unusual um, in that its cathedral library had an extraordinary collection of classical manuscripts. Extraordinary. It was one of the two great um, repositories of classical learning in Italy at the time. And it becomes a magnet. Um, for scholars and would continue to be a magnet for scholars throughout the 14th century. Um, in the uh, surroundings of the cathedral library um, or in the, 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 that environment, uh, a school of humanists uh, start to appear who are perhaps not so preoccupied with uh, writing classical Latin truly classical Latin, uh, Ciceronian periods or whatever, as they are with um, reconstituting uh, texts, providing accurate, very accurate redactions of text, distinguishing between different uh, different authors, for example, distinguishing between the two Pliny's, whatever, um, and with pursuing antiquarian interests and uh, learning about the Roman past. Um, I... Uh, I, I very much like to think of them as the um, uh, as always surrounded by by uh, manuscripts and tottering piles of books in a dusty library, uh, and I rather like them. I have to say, um, they uh, are they, they write very different types of books. Um, for the most part, figures like Benzo d'Alessandria, Giovanni da Metarchi, Sarico Baldo da Ferrara, for example, are writing kind of universal histories, if you like. They're not writing the history of Italian affairs, specifically they're not writing the history of you know, single cities so much. They, they take a very uh, global view of history, if you like. Their style is quite clunky, it's not very pleasant to read, um, but it is based on a, a careful reading of uh, of a variety of, of histories, and it reach most of them reach right up to the the, the, the present day. Um, they do draw a lot on the church fathers. Um, they uh, are marked particularly by uh, their reading of uh, figures like Erosius and Jerome, for example. Um, and as a consequence, they they articulate a slightly different vision of what empire is supposed to do. Um, they tend to, um, as you rightly pointed out, they tend to believe that the present Holy Empire is uh, a uh, is a, um, a direct continuation of its ancient uh, predecessor. Um, instead of uh, imagining the emperor as a source of uh, uh, arbitration or legal protection, 
Um, they really see him as the embodiment of uh, peace and justice, just as emperors like Augustus had been in the past. Um, provided emperors tried to imitate that kind of example, they believed, then he would inevitably, uh, they would inevitably rule in the interests of equity and the common good uh, in Northern Italy and ensure that all the states in Northern Italy uh, would enjoy peace and liberty to a uh, a, a similar extent. Um, precisely because they combine the antiquarian interests with a close reading of the church fathers, however, they tend to invest this with a, a much deeper sense of providentialism, though. Um, they tend to believe that um, God had established the empire to bring um, peace to mankind and crucially, to steer man towards salvation um, in fulfilment of prophecy. Um, so it was it was really a very uh, a very big vision, um, and it was clearly meant to have uh, application to the whole of Northern Italy. It was it was so big that it, and expansive that it could theoretically include the experiences of any particular polity in the the north of Italy. Um, but the, the kind of problem that, that, that marred it uh, was that um, it was sort of half-born. It was, it, was, it was never completely developed. Um, because it was so big and so, so expansive a vision, um, they never really succeeded in bringing it to uh, fulfillment because the, the comments in which they articulate their views are scattered throughout these gigantic histories. You really have to work to to recover their imperial views. Um, so by um, the time uh, Henry the Seventh dies in thirteen thirteen, you've got two. Well, thirteen twenty so You've got two competing visions of, of humanism and humanist imperialism existing side by side, very close to one another uh, in northeastern Italy. Um, and the question that obviously faces uh, humanists, uh, younger humans of that generation uh, and of the next generation is, well, should we not try and bring these two visions together? Should we not try and bring these two visions of humanism together, you know, the, 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 the imitative, uh, the mimetic uh, form of humanism and the antiquarian version of humanism together, together? And should we not also at the same time try and bring these two different forms of humanist imperialism together? Uh, now, first effort of that is made by um, a chap called um, Giovanni da Cervenarte. Uh, and I have to confess that he is um, probably my favourite humanist. Um, he's not a humanist uh, of which we hear a great deal. Uh, in fact, uh, even a number of specialists in, in uh, human history probably haven't read his works. But I like him a lot. And he tries to combine everything in one work. He, um, although he spent most of his life in his professional life, in, in uh, a good part of his professional life in Como, um, he was a Milanese uh, uh, by birth and by, uh, by temperament. And uh, I think he returned to his native city and spent uh, most of his later years there as well. Um, he, like Massage, was very, very interested with uh, the affairs of Milan. Um, 
and he kind of understood the problems that Milan was suffering in the early 14th century in the same moral terms as Masato had done. Um, but um, he, at the same time, followed the thinking of those from Verona, the Veronese humanists, in uniting this with uh, a greater reliance on the church fathers, particularly particularly Augustine. And he he kind of um, we didn't kind of he actually argued that. Um, provided the states of Northern Italy, having suffered this kind of moral decline, are left to their own devices. They will you know, be forever mired in anarchy and chaos. What is needed is a uh, the guidance of a single figure, an emperor, um, who was the heir to the empire, the ancient empire that had been established um, by uh, through divine providence um, for the establishment of universal peace. Um, so he's not exactly the same as either of them, but he's combining the key elements, key elements of both, and he's pointing the way crucially towards what's going to come next. Right, and and I think uh, if I again, if I'm reading this correctly, sort of jumping off of that. What happens is sort of by the the mid fourteenth century, you get this perspective that's sort of, as you say, a compromise between these two visions, and it's it's the point at which humanists really become invested in a sort of pan urban, pan italic Roman identity, um, and and one of the things that's happening in these chapters is that humanists are becoming somewhat more peripatetic and are seeing wars among city-states that aren't their their own homelands as just as troubling as if it were their own. Um, and if I'm getting that correctly, maybe you can sort of uh, jump off from there. No, I mean, you, you put that very, very well. Um, from, um, in fact, the, the 13, mid-1330s, certainly by the early 1340s, a, a new generation of humanists is coming to the fore. And just as you said, they differ from their predecessors in being more peripatetic. In contrast to Chaminate, in contrast to Masato, etc., etc., these are um, uh, peregrine humanists, if you like. Uh, in fact, that's how Petrarch describes himself. The peregrine is a wanderer uh, everywhere. Um, they, uh, like Petrarch, they, they often live all around the place. Uh, they travel widely, um, sometimes they're exiles, or they are associated with, uh, if they are associated with communal regimes, they're associated with different ones in very different circumstances, like Rome. Uh, so we've got on the one hand wanderers, Petrarch, Convenevolo de, de Prato, for example, who are uh, ex often exiles from the native cities, and we've got kind of uh, Roman communal officials like um, uh, like um, Codrienza. Um, this um, gives them a very different perspective on uh, uh, the political situation of northern Italy. Um, they, as you said, tend to take a wide view. They they recognise that there are wars between states, but they, they're not always so willing to take sides. Uh, they recognise there is factionalism in Rome, but they don't want to pick one side over the other either. Uh, they kind of stand back a little bit. The humanism is also slightly different too. Um, they 
particularly Petrarch, uh, succeeds in, in bringing the, the different strains of humanism together. They write in a very wide number of different genres, a wide range of different genres. They uh, are interested in the acquisition of accurate redactions of texts. Uh, Petrarch is very interested in editing Livy, for example. Um, they consciously attempt to to emulate the Latin classics in style. Um, they have a deep appreciation of the Church Fathers. Petrarch has a profound attachment to St. Augustine, for example. Uh, but they've also got a, a keen uh, interest in Roman law, etc., uh, etc. Et um, so, taking this broad view of Italian affairs and this deep appreciation of um, Roman literature and history, what do they, 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 they come to believe? Well, they are very, very disturbed by the, the as they call it, the, the Italic and civil wars that are ripping through the peninsula. And they ask, but they, they say to themselves, well, actually, things went always this way. Um, back in the past, um, when Rome uh, was at its zenith, Italy was at peace. Um, the only problem was that um, that had only been the case that when Rome had been, uh, you know, uh, run by men of virtue. And our present problems are, they said to themselves, the ultimate consequence of Rome having suffered from the same moral, kind of moral decline that Messato had identified occurring in Padua some uh, time earlier in the 14th century. Um, and because Rome had been corrupted by vice and virtue, the Italic world had collapsed in on itself, and the whole peninsula had lost any sense of peace that it had, it had previously had, and had become a victim of, of foreign aggressors. Uh, and they often uh, allude to um, the mercenary bands who were then marauding through the centre of the peninsula, uh, and also prey to factionism. Let's not forget, forget for factionism. So, how do we get? Over this problem, they say to themselves, well, obviously, if Italy had been at peace once when Rome was at its zenith, then surely it would be at peace and enjoy liberty again if we make sure that Rome is back at the same level again. So we have to restore Rome. We have to have a renovatio Romae. Now, clearly, that is also going to involve two other things. Because at the peak of Rome's greatness, it was sustained by men of virtue. We also have to have a renovation of morals, a renovatio morum. And on the other hand, because Rome at its zenith under Augustus had been an empire ruled by an emperor, we also have to have a restoration of empire, an empire in Rome specifically. Now, the question is, which of these two things should come first? Should it be a revival of morals or should it be a revival of empire? Initially, uh, the answer is, well, okay, let's go with um, the uh, renovation of empire. This is in the late 1330s, early 1340s. Congenevoli de Plato and Petrarch both suggest that Rome can only be put back on top uh, and Italy can be restored to peace if there is an empire, you know, making his seat in Rome once again. The only problem they face is the emperor who is then on the throne is really not the one they would want. At that point, um, there is sitting on the imperial throne a chap called Ludwig IV of Bavaria, who was a really interesting figure for historians, but a really terrible emperor if you're an Italian. 
um, because he's been involved in a savage struggle with the papacy for decades. Um, he had, in the 1320s, he had even come to Rome and deposed a pope and elected his own. And he left behind him chaos, absolute chaos, as Petrox says, uh, fields stained with blood. Um, so they can't, uh, you know, invite Ludwig IV because he's not the kind of chap they want. Um, so instead, they see they 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 look to um, Robert of Naples, the Angevin king of Naples, and they say, well, he isn't an emperor, but he is of such outstanding moral quality that he deserves to wear the mantle of empire. And so Petrarch repeatedly appeals to him and Sibs Compatibile de Prato to um, restore Rome and they use the language of empire in doing so. Um, from uh, 1347 to 1350, however, that changes. In Rome, uh, a figure called Cola di Rienzo, come, who I've already mentioned, comes to the fore. Cola is a remarkable figure. Um, who has had a very checkered reception in uh, the historiographical tradition. Um, basically, uh, he um, wished to establish a new republic of one stato in, uh, in Rome, a popular republic, uh, which would transcend um, Roman factionalism, uh, restore peace, uh, and uh, hopefully, in his view, restore the virtue of the Romans and then reclaim the right to choose an emperor and then re-establish empire in the city of Rome from scratch. Uh, his argument was essentially legal. Uh, it relied on the, uh, the text of uh, a, a law called the Lex um, uh, uh, um, the uh, Lex de Imperium Vespasiani, um, and he suggested that because in, in the ancient past uh, the Roman Senate and people had conferred a series of powers on the emperors, tribunician power, etc., etc., um, the Roman people had the capacity to reclaim those powers and confer them on a new candidate to themselves. So he wanted to kind of short circuit the system usually used for electing emperors, which at this point, which was to, uh, for them to be elected by the German princes, the College of Electors. Um, and he also tried to subvert a long-standing legal tradition which had viewed these powers that the Roman people transferred to the emperors as an irrevocable gift um, to jumpstart the, uh, the, the empire again. Um, so that's the second phase. In the third phase, um, it all changes. By 1350, Cole de Rienzo has fallen. He's been ejected from Rome. He's imprisoned in, in uh, he's forced into exile. And later on, he's in, imprisoned in Prague. And a new emperor, or new king of the Romans, soon to be emperor, is on the throne. Charles IV of Luxembourg, a towering figure, extraordinarily cultured, great experience of Italy. He had campaigned in Italy with his father, John of Bohemia, in the 1330s. He spoke Italian. Um, he was of outstanding virtue and had a great relationship with the popes in the early part of his reign, at least. In fact, he was derisively called by his opponents the Fafenkönig, the, 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 the Parsons king. Uh, and for 
Petrarch and some of his other contemporaries, he was an answer to their prayers. So they go back to the earlier vision uh, that they'd articulated in the 1330s and early 1340s, whereby they sought to have an emperor, in this case Charles IV, make his seat in Rome, restore the empire, effecto renovatio imperi, and the renovatio Romae, and then, by extension, bring peace and liberty of the whole of Italy. So Petrarch spends a long, long time writing to Charles IV, begging him to come to Italy. Then, uh, when he comes to Italy for his first coronation, celebrating the fact he's in Italy, and then when he leaves, begging him to come again. Um, but even Petrarch grows tired of this. He knows that by the end of his life, that um, when uh, that, that Charles has no intention of, of really settling in Italy, that he's never actually going to affect the, the, the renovation of Rome. So by the time of Charles comes the second time in, in uh, 1368, Petrarch just ignores it totally. Um, so that's the second phase where we have a new branch of humanism and that's really focusing its imperialism on Rome itself. Yeah, and this to me was one of the most fascinating chapters in the book for, for so many reasons. Um, I really am, yeah, like just really fascinated by this, this almost synecdoche that they're making between sort of seeing the city of Rome itself, the, the, the city of Rome's decline as an emblem or a cause of the sort of pan-Italian decline. Um, so I just find that sort of trans-historical identification that they're making there really fascinating. Um, relatedly, this is a little hard to put my finger on precisely, but it seemed to me like there's something interesting going on with a, a linguistic issue that we have when we, when we reference Rome, right? Because Rome is both the name of a city, but also the name of the empire over which that city ruled. And when I when I read this, there's this at times there in their thinking and writing, there's this almost comical literalism uh, to what they're saying about Rome. Because, you know, when you look at Roman history itself, it really demonstrates that even, you know, before 476, you can have a robust Roman empire that is more or less completely divorced from the city of Rome. So I, I don't know if there's a question there or anything, but to me that, that, that like I said, it was almost a farcical literalism. And um, yeah, I don't know if, if you have any thoughts about, about that, if that makes any sense. <laughs> it does. It's, it, it's a very, very interesting point, actually. Um, for uh, the, uh, the mid-century humanists, Petrarch, Adriente, etc., um, Rome is uh, kind of mother of Italy. Um, they do I, idealize and personify Rome uh, in that way and focus their attention on the city itself. But in the same sense, they do use Rome uh, as uh, an encapsulation, a more expansive encapsulation of Italy as a whole, um, often in quite a literal way. So, for example, when Calderienzo uh, announces the formation of the one stat in Rome. Uh, that's to say the, the new uh, Roman Republic he's, he's establishing. He summons uh, the, at that point, two contenders for the imperial throne to uh, Rome, Charles IV and Ludwig IV of Bavaria. Uh, he summons the imperial electors to Rome, and he also sends a series of letters to um, uh, 
cities and communes and signories scattered throughout the Italian Peninsula to also come and join them for a new, for what he calls a Roman synod, at which the affairs of empire will be settled and the uh, a, a new emperor will be chosen. So what's he doing here? If one were to be absolute, pay things absolutely by the book, he really didn't need to do this. If he was saying that the, the Lex de Imperio Vespasiani, by which the Senate and people of Rome had transferred their authority, tribulation, power, etc., to the emperors, if he was reclaiming those authorities, that, that authority, those powers, he didn't necessarily have to uh, rely on anybody but the Roman people. But what he's doing essentially in inviting the other Italian powers to come is suggesting that in actual fact he considers them in some way to be Romans as well. He's evoking the extension of Roman citizenship which had taken place in the in the ancient past to make everybody Roman. So it isn't the case that, it isn't just the case that all roads in his mind are leading to Rome. But in actual fact, that all people are becoming Roman as well. Um, so there is a sense of using Rome as uh, evoking a sense of spiritual oneness, uh, or to evoke a sense of spiritual oneness. Now, uh, to your point about uh, Rome, a Roman Empire divorced from Rome, the mid-century humanists simply could never imagine that, because they even though they are expanding the definition of, of, of who is a Roman dramatically, cozy, um, they never lose sight of the fact that the Roman Empire is Rome. Rome is the Caput Mundi and nowhere else. It is not something that can be shifted anywhere else. Petrarch actually you know, writes a, a letter about this to the Roman people. You know, he says, even though, um, you know, Rome is a shadow of what, what, what it once was, even though it may have been ruled by foreigners for so many centuries. Um, it is still Rome, and it is still the Caput Mundi. Therefore, you know, you make the decisions. It's here that everything is settled. It's here that emperors govern, and nowhere else. Now, um, a small caveat here. It has been suggested in discussions of um, uh, a slightly later poem by Leonardo Bruni called Carmen de Adventure Imperatoris that uh, a mention of Rome uh, in that verse may be a, a kind of uh, 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 used um, metonymically of Florence, may be just a way to describe Florence. This is false. Although a number of cities were compared to Rome and actively compared themselves to Rome, and although humanists like to occasionally um, praise cities as being similar to Rome's glories, Rome was Rome and nowhere else. And there is no doubt about that. Nobody could speak of Rome and mean Venice, or no one could speak of Rome and mean Florence or Milan. Rome is Rome in the mid-14th century, and that's it. Well, this is a good way to segue into the second half of the book, um, where you take a more thematic angle, and you start with the pressing question of 
sort of what are we even talking about when we talk about the empire? Because there's the ancient Roman empire, and then there's the contemporary Holy Roman empire. And the continuities and discontinuities naturally exercise the humanist to no small degree. And one of the things that comes up as a sticking point is the degree to which the Holy Roman Empire is essentially just a German empire sitting aside the juridical carcass of the Roman Empire. So this is the sort of geographical, ethnic angle, um, and the way that the, the humanists are looking at that is something that you tackle in, in the first chapter of the second half of the book. You're absolutely right um, to uh, highlight uh, the the problematic relationship between the uh, Holy Roman Empire and the, uh, the Roman Empire of antiquity. Um, the humanists were conscious of this, um, but conscious of it in a very specific way. Um, for humanists from the late 13th century right through to 1402, um, there was never any real doubt that the empire they were talking about, the Holy Roman Empire, was uh, universal in its scope. It enjoyed universal dominion in theory. Um, and they realised that it did so uh, largely because of its descent from its ancient predecessor. Um, they could point, for example, to um, Jupiter's prophecy in the Aeneid that uh, uh, the Romans would enjoy an uh, imperium sine fine, which could be construed as meaning both temporal uh, uh, duration and geographical extent. Um, but they also, um, at the same time, they also felt this universalism derived from um, an idea that the empire had been established by God uh, to maintain peace throughout the world. Now, there, there is a slight disjoint between these these two things, and nobody, the humanists struggle to to grapple to grapple with them, um, with the relationship between between them. Where does the difference lie? Well, actually, it relates beautifully to your previous question: uh, the role of Rome. If the empire is construed more as something that has been instituted by God to rule over humanity and bring peace to humanity, then the city of Rome itself enjoys rather less prominence. If, by contrast, we want to say that it is the Holy Empire enjoys universal dominion principally because it is derived from the ancient empire, then Rome's centrality becomes more prominent a concern. Although it isn't essential, as you rightly pointed out, uh, the empire, the, the reigns of empire had been transferred to various different nations uh, and had its seat in various different places, Constantinople, etc. Um, but Rome still enjoys a particular um, significance. Um, the humanists um, really aren't... Um, initially, they're not all that troubled with with looking into this all that closely, you know, Sato and uh, that lot uh, are um, happy to just say it's a universal empire, full stop. Um, but later on, uh, it becomes uh, becomes more significant. Um, it becomes particularly significant during 
um, the the mid 14th century in the writings of Petrarch, etc., when the emphasis gets thrown on Rome as a uh, as the capital mundi, as the sword, the empire as 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 being inextricably linked to the city of Rome. So really, although it does fulfil a, a, a partially um, providential role at this part, it's really it's the empire as the successor to the ancient Roman Empire um, that. Uh, focuses attention on, on Rome itself, um, whether that is, you know, as a, as a symbolic caput mundi or as a repository of legal authority uh, residing in the, the Roman people themselves. Um, by the end of the 14th century, however, it, um, it sort of uh, dissipates uh, altogether. Um, no single humanist ever tries to deny that um, the uh, the contemporary empire is derived from the ancient empire, but they rapidly avoid placing any emphasis on Rome itself. One thing that about this chapter that was interesting to me, right, is that it is emblematic of what you do in the whole book, which is you really with quite a fine-tuned sensitivity down to really even the decade, demonstrate how uh, interconnected humanist thought is with their contemporary political situation in such a way that these changes often would subvert a more unidirectional kind of triumphalist narrative about ever-increasing progressive um, sensitivity on the part of the humanists to historicity. And you can look sort of at the difference, to me at least, between someone like Rico Baldo in the earlier part of the 14th century versus what happens in the mid-14th uh, century. And, and you have Rico Baldo here, who is clearly aware that although there is this connection between the present and the past empire, the empire is no longer truly a Roman institution. It's Although rightfully, the empire he thinks if is a is a distinctly German institution, but by the mid fourteenth century, you say that all doubts about the Romanness of the universal empire have have dissipated, and that they believe in an almost a historical way, contra Ricobaldo, that the there is an unbroken, uninterrupted chain linking the contemporary. Roman Empire with the ancient Roman Empire. Absolutely, I I think um, it is worth saying that, speaking generally, humanist political thought has often been treated um, as if the humanists were only indirectly engaged with their political surroundings, and that their as if their political beliefs, which some people deny, some humanists actually had. Um, were more a consequence of their um, classical reading than, than anything else. But it, it, it is my very firm belief that um, actually uh, the humanists are firmly grounded in their uh, political environment. Uh, they are responding directly to the challenges of the moment, whether they are employed, whether they are uh, the... Uh, you know, communal officials like working directly on behalf of a commune, uh, whether they are uh, uh, 
semi-official uh, court humanists like Ferreira de Freiti, uh, or whether they are um, wanderers like Petrarch. They are responding to the political environment in which they find themselves and are never divorced from it. They make their classical learning serve that purpose. And as you rightly say, this is as true of their understanding of the geographical extent of empire as anything else. Um, there are a number of um, very um, uh, important uh, ideas uh, working away in the background with which they have to grapple. There is um, a sense on the one hand that the empire is uh, universal because it is derived from uh, the ancient empire. Uh, and as a consequence, that it is in some way linked logically to the city of Rome. On the other hand, they uh, have to engage with the idea that uh, it is uh, a, a universal empire because um, it has been established by God uh, in order to bring peace to humanity, uh, predominantly for the reason of guiding people towards salvation, um, whether that is understood as an empire which has been conferred on the Roman people or not, it has nevertheless been established uh, for that purpose. At the same time, they have to contend with the third consideration, which is more historical, which was that in between the establishment of the Roman Empire and the 14th century, quite a lot had happened, um, namely that it had moved. The empire, they had to contend with the fact that the empire had been a relatively transient institution. It had moved uh, to uh, the east. Uh, Constantinople had shifted the centre of the, uh, so Constantine had shifted the, the capital of the empire to Constantinople. Uh, that's to say, in the, the, the minds of some thinkers, it had become, uh, uh, it had been trans translated to the Greeks. Uh, then after a period of, uh, of um, abeyance uh, from the 5th century onwards, um, in the, the 9th century, it was transferred to the, to the Franks in Charlemagne, and subsequently with the advent of the Italians, it had been transferred to the Germans. Um, so finally... There was the fourth consideration that by the time it had been conferred on the Germans, if you like, the Etonians, the empire consisted of a series of quite compact kingdoms. Um, the, uh, the, the German crown, the kingdom of Arles in southern France, the kingdom of, of Italy. Um, and so it, 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 it has a, a practical dimension. Now, for the humanists, it's important to try and uh, differentiate between these different overlapping meanings. Um, and they are guided throughout by their practical considerations. Um, for the um, you know for the very earliest humanists, um, they're they're quite happy to accept that the empire is a universal institution that it had been you know it had been descended in some way from the the ancient empire, but that it was a, a kind of as you rightly say for Cabaldi a Germanic institution which nevertheless had a particular practical. Um, uh, uh, frame, uh, limited um, geographical frame in, in reality, but because um, geographical extent wasn't too relevant to the concerns of individual communes, and because these debates didn't actually affect how an empire related to, say, the commune of, of Padua, it, it really didn't matter that much to navigate between these meanings. Um, by the mid-century, 
um, when uh, humanists like Petrarch and Federico de Prato and Caldrienzo um, are looking to the Roman past more actively um, for an understanding of Italy's political condition rather than the condition of individual communes, this becomes a more pressing concern. Um, and they focus their attention more precisely on Rome. They're more concerned to stress that the heritage of Rome uh, of the Roman Empire as the immediate predecessor of the contemporary empire. They downgrade the German elements almost totally. They're less um, interested in exploring the intricacies of you know, the Frankish heritage, the, if you like, Greek heritage, whatever. Um, and indeed, there's a lovely letter of Petrarch where he talks to, um, to when he's, he's addressing Charles IV, when he says that um, although... Um, you you know you will go from being a bohemian king to being ah emperor uh, in Rome. Um, he uh, he says that he's he's effectively an Italian and he is above all going to be a Roman emperor. Um, so attention is focused very much on Rome uh, above all, and the other considerations kind of dissipate. Um, they're you know they they're not. All even now, they're not that preoccupied with exploring the tension between the theoretical universal dominion, that is to say, um, global dominion, uh, and the the, the 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 practical limits of, of the borders of of, of the empire. Um, as a code, the only time when, for the, the very earliest 14th century, uh, his uh, humanists have to engage with this issue is in relation to the uh, Henry the Seventh possible or lack of authority over um, Robert of Naples. Um, but that is a very complicated question, um, which uh, I'd rather not get into just now, if that's all right. By the end of the 14th century, um, when uh, figures like uh, Coluccio Solitati and Benvenuto di Imola moved to the fore, um, Rome's, the centrality of Rome and the Roman people effectively, uh, effectively vanishes. Um, they still maintain an attachment to, to universalism. But the reason why they they uh, kind of move away from a Roman focus is principally because they are, again, focusing on the interests of, in Sotardi's case, of an individual city. Um, and at times, uh, they are very, very wary of... Uh, Activating the involvement of certain popes, you know, during the War of the Eight Saints, the very, very last thing they want is to um, uh, find any, 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 any reason why the empire should be absolutely focused on on Rome itself. Um, uh, so, and then when France finds itself most tellingly in uh, the situation where it um, it has to fight off a possible invasion by the recently deposed King of the Romans, Wenceslas, in 1402. It's a period of a couple of weeks in early 1402 where everything looks as if it's falling apart. It looks as if Wenceslas is going to descend into Italy to help the Milanese against Florence. Um, you find um, that uh, Bruni writes this poem, the Carmen de Vento Imperatoris, where he urges the people of Rome to rise up against the empire, uh, against the, the emperor, by which he means Wenceslas. Um, and at that point, you see the severing, the absolute severing of the idea of, of imperial universalism and 
uh, and Rome, because if Rome is the centre of any kind of um, of any kind of universal empire, you definitely can't have it rising up against um, anybody who might even potentially hold imperial authority. Now, one thing that folks who are not super familiar with this period of history might not know is the profound extent to which conflict between the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire was a pivotal driver of geopolitics throughout the high and later Middle Ages. And you devote a chapter in of the book to the way that humanists intellectually entered the fray during the 14th century when the conflict was particularly pronounced and also, like everything else in this book, shifted quite rapidly. And you can move through the sort of thought of Riccobaldo, um, whose confidence in a sort of dualist framework is the bedrock of the humanistic attitudes for the 14th century. And as you move throughout the chapter and the period, it closes almost in farce because you have two great luminaries of, of Florentine thought, Petrarch and Salutati, who are exultant over the return of the Pope from Avignon with uh, the Emperor Charles following soon after. They are in the city of Rome together. This is a great, um, a great thing for, for these thinkers to witness, central to their thought. But almost immediately, the Pope is dead and the Great Schism emerges. And this, once again, fosters a realignment of humanist attitudes, which you pointedly note represents yet another instance of humanist confidence being obliterated by the realities of Italian politics. So um, if you don't mind sketching out some of the contours of that uh, intellectual development to whatever detail you'd like. Sure. Well, you've done a pretty good job of it already, actually. Um, it is true that... Um, the humanists uh, were united by a persistent belief that there should be a harmonious and symbiotic relationship um, between Pope and Emperor. Um, each should support the other, but each should be separate. The, the authority of each should be kept absolutely separate. Uh, this, as you rightly pointed out, is often described using the word dualism, uh, whereby the Emperor had the duty and responsibility to uphold um, the, the, uh, the, the faith, defend the faith against its enemies and theoretically expand its borders as well uh, against heretics or whatever, um, but should in no way interfere with um, the Pope's spiritual authority over the church. Similarly, they uniformly believed that it was the responsibility of the um, Pope to uh, to um, guide Christians to salvation and protect the integrity of the faith, he absolutely could not interfere with secular affairs um, except um, insofar as the governance of the papal states was concerned. Uh, now, this was all very nice. It all seemed very clear on paper, but the problem was it kept being tested by successive emperors and popes. Um, the... Um, the first signs of this actually occur, as you rightly pointed out, uh, of this being tested, uh, occur, as you rightly pointed out, occur in the early 14th century um, when uh, you have um, Pope Boniface VIII locked in a struggle with Philip IV of France. Um, and as you rightly noted, uh, Riccobaldo, uh, the Ferrara, uh, comes to believe. Uh, 
in the midst of that uh, conflict that the emperor's duty to defend the church might perhaps force him to uh, or oblige him to convene councils or even to defend to depose um, popes um, but uh, Eventually, this crisis becomes so so cataclysmic that even Riccobaldo is frightened of where this logic might lead, and so says, actually, we need to, to maintain a, a firm division between the two spheres. Absolutely, they shouldn't meddle in each other, because if we have emperors and deposing popes and popes deposing, or kings deposing popes and emperors deposing kings and emperors, it, it, it'll all end up in a terrible mess, and we, we won't know what, what's happening, or Christendom will, will, will crumble. Um, uh, but um, it, it keeps getting tested. The biggest test for the humanists occurs uh, in the 1320s, un unquestionably. Um, after the death of Henry VII in 1313, um, the German electors make, uh, not a mistake, but <laughs> end up electing two people simultaneously. Um, the electors are divided. Um, you have on the one hand Frederick the Fair of Habsburg, and on the other hand Ludwig the Four of Fourth of Bavaria, um, and they are locked in a struggle for mastery for some time. Um, in the midst of this, the Pope John the Twenty Second decides to intervene decisively in northern Italian affairs. He does so on the basis of something called the Donation of Constantine. And this was to prove an incredibly important text for much of the rest of the early, the first half of the 14th century. This was a forgery. The forgery was not known until much later, but it was a document which um, purported to record um, an, an event involving the Emperor Constantine and uh, the Pope at the time. Um, Constantine, it was said, had contracted leprosy and uh, he was healed by the Pope. In um, gratitude for this, Constantine gave the entire empire to the Pope and the Pope then gave it back to, uh, conferred its, its custody, its custodianship on Constantine um, to exercise for his lifetime. Now, the uh, the way the Popes interpreted this uh document was that um, the emperors in fact received their authority from the popes um, and that if for whatever reason uh, there was no emperor the pope could reclaim uh, governance of the empire himself himself um, it also meant that any choice of emperor according to the popes needed to be confirmed by pontifical uh, authority um, a subject we can perhaps discuss a little bit later. Anyway, on the basis of this uh, principle, faced with the, the dual election, the double election of Frederick of and Ludwig of Bavaria, John the 22nd says, okie dokie, there's no clear uh, King of the Romans here, so I'll step in and I will use this opportunity to um, dismiss a pile of vicars that have been appointed by Henry VII, appoint my own and start extending my sway um, a little bit further. Uh, for my own benefit. Um, this leads to massive crises, even before the dispute between Ludwig IV and, um, and Philip Fair is resolved, because the humanists deeply resent this. They don't really like the idea that the Pope is reaching 
out of his own sphere. Whatever they feel about the donation of Constantine, and none of them really question it that seriously, they don't like the Pope assuming a more active role in secular affairs. However, when later Ludwig IV emerges victorious after the Battle of Muldorf um, and assumes the reins of empire uh, in his own right, um, he runs into a headlong conflict with John when he tries to re-establish himself in Northern Italy uh, or even assume the reins of empire itself. Um, this culminates, as I alluded to some time ago, in Ludwig marching into Italy, into Rome, uh, notionally deposing the Pope, who was then in Avignon, and appointing his own anti-Pope. And the humanists are stunned by this. Masato, more so than almost any other, he was a dualist at heart, uh, and in his early mid-career works, he had attempted to defend uh, the ideal of dualism amidst certain tensions, simmering tensions between Henry VII um, and uh, Clement V. But now he can't, he sees it being pushed to its absolute limit. He, he realises that he has to condemn effectively both sides. He says that John XXII was absolutely wrong to meddle in secular affairs. But and this is unfortunate for him. He says, although he, this, although he still retains a certain faith in the emperor as a guarantor, the, 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 the imperial authority as the guarantor of peace and liberty in northern Italy, he is forced to acknowledge that in deposing the pope, the rightful pope, Ludwig had acted against uh, the duties and obligations of his office and had hence forfeited the right to bear the imperial title and to exercise imperial authority. And essentially, he had, in essence, he had forfeited his throne. Um, so the humanists really find themselves very much up against this. Um, fortunately, um, as you rightly pointed out in your uh, your question, um, the accession of uh, Charles the Fourth, the who was derisively named the Waffenkönig, as I, as I pointed out, um, seemed to offer the, the humanists some hope. At last, you know, here is a guy who um, had in fact been taught by um, a, a pope. When earlier in the pope's career, of course, who'd been tutored by uh, a future pontiff who made a big show of wanting to rule in harmony with the, the Pope and respecting the dualistic division of authority. Um, now, the, the, they, they even, it, it is true that Charles IV did squabble a little bit with, um, with, with Clement the, the Sixth, um, but they saw, the humanists basically ignored this. They said it was Charles IV's duty, now that we had a good, virtuous um, uh, emperor on the throne, it was the, Pope's, uh, the, the emperor's duty to restore not just peace to Italy, but also now to act in defence of the faith and the church without trespassing on spiritual matters. What did that involve? Well, it involved returning the papacy from Avignon, where it had been in exile since the early uh, 14th century, to Rome itself. 
and thereby contribute to the Renovatio Romae, which, which um, Petrarch, Codolienzo, etc., wanted to see accomplished. Um, it never uh, really, uh, really came off, um, and Petrarch also started retreating from it a little bit. He started to believe that actually the 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 Pope should come should return on his of his own volition. Um, but basically, the humanists at this point are, are still start you know still attached to the idea of. Um, Two powers helping each other while remaining separate and respecting each other's uh, separate sphere of authority. Um, however, when the popes eventually do return, um, it's to Rome. It's a false. Uh, it, it's 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 a it, it's full of false promise, really. A moment of excitement quickly dissipates because. When Urban VI is elected, um, he proves to be such a divisive figure, possibly unhinged, that uh, a group of cardinals um, flee Rome and elect an antipope. They elect um, uh, Robert of Geneva as uh, um, uh, antipope Clement VII. So the humanists who had, who had longed to see uh, the papacy returned to Rome and had longed to see uh, the emperors, uh, you know, help facilitate this return, this restoration of the church, and a fruitful relationship between empire and a fruitful but separate relationship between Pope and emperor, were now faced with the horrible realisation that, that Christendom itself was divided. This posed an invidious question. If you believed that it was part of the emperor's role to defend the church while not interfering in spiritual affairs, what what should he do now that you had a schism in the church? Should the emperor act to resolve the situation? Should he stand back? Should he let it, you know, work itself out? What should happen? Um, well, there are there are three alternatives that that uh, that are presented for the resolution of the schism generally. One is um, for all for 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 uh, the, the 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 question to be resolved by a, a council, essentially for a council to be to con, con, uh, convened, and um, the uh, the gathering of the faithful uh, to decide the issue of the papacy. The second one was for um, allegiance to each pope to be withdrawn and the new pope to be elected uh, and the other one was for um, you know one candidate just to be pushed forward relentlessly um, initially um, Pluto Tardy and Benvenuto de Imola um, were of the opinion that um, what, they, they kind of trod a, a careful line they believed that it actually was the emperor's duty to um, to defend the church, and they did believe that the emperor should do something about this. But they consciously avoided saying what to start with, because they didn't really know. And they also avoided voicing this belief to the emperor. They avoided calling on the, the then king of the Romans, Wenceslas, to intervene. Why? Well, because... 
He was very unlike his dad, Charles IV. He was supposed to be a drunkard. He was quite an ineffective ruler. He was eventually deposed um, by the electors. In fact, he was so used. So they didn't call on him um, to settle um, settle uh, the the issue. Um, but in the end, uh, Salutati um, finds an alternative solution. He says, well, actually, we can't really trust Wenceslas to do much, but maybe we could force him to, or, or persuade him to force the princes, the Christian princes of Europe, to withdraw their obedience to the pontiffs and thereby create the circumstances where a new election can take place. But as you rightly point out, it's a it's a horrible situation. For duelists, um, it, it, it was the worst situation they could have found themselves in. And their hopes were really uh, in tatters, even before the final crisis arrives. And the final crisis is the um, uh, the situation in the very early 15th century where um, Florence finds itself um, allying with one pope uh, against uh, Wenceslas, who, after being opposed, is threatening to come in. So um, it's in... in Leonardo Bruni's poem, the, the Comedy of Indian Imperatoris, we see um, the uh, a, a humanist advancing a position which, at the beginning of the 14th century, you would never ever have imagined a humanist uh, taking. That is to say, encouraging a pontiff to take up arms against a king of the Romans, even one who had been deposed. It, it is the the, the, the the destruction of um, of uh, the humanist dualism. Uh, only a few years after it seemed it had reached its uh, triumphant uh, zenith. The book is called Humanism and Empire. It is a lucidly written, stimulating engagement with a fascinating topic and period of history. I highly recommend it. And it remains for me to thank Dr. Alexander Lee for joining us. Thank you very much indeed.